Hello, friends. Welcome back, everyone, to another episode of Improv and Magic. I'm your host, as always, L.D. Madeira, and my guest today is someone who I've had the pleasure of sharing the stage with many times. He's Rick Munares. Rick is currently a cast member, director, teacher, and manager at Just the Funny, my home theater. He works for the Montley Fool, and he's a fellow Disney fan. We spend a little bit of time geeking out about our love of Disney, which could be its own episode, really. And we talk about his early beginnings and what led him to this incredible world of improv. We also learn about his early beginnings in the music industry. Did you know that he was in a band? We'll learn a little bit about that. He's such a great guy to talk to, full of love, full of excitement, and just an all-round great human being. I hope you enjoy this, everyone. Here is Rick Munares. Well, I'm sitting here once again in the hallowed office of my home theater, JTF, and I'm sitting with an incredible guy. You know him, you love him, you can't live without him. He is Rick Munares. Hey, Rick, how you doing? How you doing, LT? Thanks. Uh, thanks. Uh, thanks so much for being here. It's uh, it's good to it's good to have you. It, it's it's good to be here. Good to uh, I, I heard the David one. I haven't heard the Marlene one. I haven't heard the Anthony one. But I'm you know looking forward to hearing mine. I guess so. <laughs> yes. Um, you've been uh, a part of this theater now f- since. Uh, since what year? Since 2012. So since I guess 20, 11 years. Yeah. Wow. Yeah, yeah. The end of 2012. I, I came in as a student in January, and by the end of the year, I owned a piece of the company. So it was kind of like a, like the the Patriots guy that likes the Razor so much, you had to buy the whole company and stuff. So <laughs> uh, not that I bought the whole company, but yes, I've, I've been part of the ownership management team here since. Uh, uh, I mean, late 2012. So I guess it's been 10 and a half years at this point. Yeah. Well, you've definitely seen a lot of. Uh ebb and flow through this theater you've seen a lot of changes uh you've seen a lot of the good a lot of the bad i know you're also heavily involved with the miami improv festival and you know as you look back on all these years here like what reflections come to you as you think about all these years being here i think of all the amazing people that i would have probably never met uh if i wasn't here um when i when i started taking classes i think it's like most people they just uh they're not oh I, well some people i guess oh i want to be on saturday Night live all this i i came in as an old man or i, I should i should I, should, I, <laughs> I came in as a man in my 40s uh so I, I had no ambitions or anything like that uh i i was already i i needed an escape so at the time i was doing a lot of speaking engagements uh for the motley fool which is the company i work for mm-hmm. I, when i'm not here believe it or not this doesn't always pay the bill so we all have day jobs uh, the Motley Fool. Which that's is a, not much of a surprise. It's, it's not a surprise. That's, that's a yes and plot twist. But so, uh, and I wanted to help my public speaking because I was, I was getting more, I was, I was being on CNBC. I was like doing NPR stuff. I was on the radio and stuff. And I still had all the verbal tics. I had the ums. Uh, and I spoke very fast, all these things. And I said, I can do Toastmasters and I'm sure I'll be a better speaker when I get out of it, but I just always loved improv. Uh, I had affinity for it years before I even discovered Just the Funny itself as a platform. And it just said, you know, I just have to do the improv route because I'll have fun. And sure enough, I still say a lot of ums. I still speak a mile a minute, so I didn't cure what I came in to do. But (laughs) I've learned all the listening, the relationships, and of course, as I mentioned, just all the people that I've met that... I would have never met. Uh, you know, it, it's you get caught in your own circle of friends and everything and people you work with. 
And this is almost like it, you, you find yourself in a classroom, no matter where you are, when you take an improv class, you're thrown into like a lifeboat with people that you've never seen before, would have probably never met. And the bonds that happen, all the shared experiences, you know, uh, even years from now, five, seven years ago, I can talk to one person, we can talk about one scene that happened way in the past, and we both remember that moment kind of thing. So it's, it's really weird how... Uh, you make these connections uh, just just through the, the the twelve years. So yeah, uh, again, yeah, good, bad, and ugly. But I, I I mostly remember the good. Well, you know, it's always interesting to see you on stage because, you know, you're one of those rare performers that I could say happily that you're 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 being yourself. And I don't mean in terms of character, but I mean you're playing the way you feel comfortable playing. You're playing the way you want to play, mm-hmm. and you embrace that this is who you are, and and this is what you present. Yeah, I think so. I mean, I think I always try to help and be more character like when I can, you know, you don't want to play yourself literally in every scene. And I'd like to think that it helps me keep me in check sometimes. So I don't really necessarily go too blue or go dark, even though I think it happens in every improv scene. Sometimes Mm -hmm. the the crowd turns in a certain way and your scene partner turns a certain way and you sort of have to find your way to navigate, surf that wave. But I do think that, yeah, it, it's uh, I, I, I'm trying to work. Even 11 years into improv, and I'm still trying to develop myself. And I, even though you say it's, you say it's a compliment, I don't take it as a compliment. And I would, and I really definitely try to uh, come into scenes and go. I'm going to try something a little different. And I'm mm-hmm. taking more chances now. Now that uh, you know, now that I don't need the the net safety net under me, that I can take chances and and uh, take a little more bolder step rather than play myself, so to speak. Okay. So. Let's start with the beginning with you. Uh, where did you grow up? Um, I grew up, well, I was born in New Jersey. So that's a little, I, I did not grow up in New Jersey. I was born in Jersey, mm-hmm. uh, lived in West New York, which even though it's West New York, it's actually in Jersey. So don't, I never, uh, you had David and Marlene on. They spent time in New York uh, it, it, when they were young. I was actually born right there, right on the wrong side of the Hudson uh, in New Jersey. But uh, when I was six months old, uh, my dad got transferred uh, to Puerto Rico, to work in Puerto Rico. So uh, we moved over to San Juan and then eventually Mayaues, which is on the other side of the island, not the big city, but, you know, west. I like the islander side, this west coast uh, Puerto Rico, where I lived till I was five. And then my parents uh, uprooted. My dad wanted to start a business, but didn't would be competing against the guy that brought him down there, and he didn't want to do that. So he said, well, I'm just going to go to Miami, where I hear a lot of us Cubans go. Because when you were a Cuban in the, in the late 60s and you fled uh, Cuba, you basically went to either New Jersey uh, Puerto Rico or Miami. Those right. were the three resting spots. And right. I think I covered all three, finally landing in Miami uh, in 72 uh, when I was five and uh, been here ever since. What did your dad do? He's a frozen, well, he was a frozen food distributor. He died last year, so I, I feel rude. I say mm. was, is, but I'm totally cool with it. He lived a great life. He's a, lived a very proud life. Uh, yeah, he was a, a frozen food, he worked a frozen food distributorship, uh, which is basically a frozen warehouse uh down in the middle of Miami which is now like Wynwood practically so it's trendy now back then he was just on the rail line uh convenient to get rail car shipments we we sold about like nine million pounds of french fries a year uh and and got to see the world uh because of that uh he sold a lot in the Caribbean so we spent a lot of time in the Caribbean but also had the means to go and travel and, and see a lot of other things so yeah uh, um had a very successful frozen food distribution it was a Hispanic business 500 company for several years uh but you know uh yeah that's what happened did a lot of that food come home yes 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 uh to this day i still have like like this taste of like these little chicken cordon blues that they brought from chicago uh was one of his customers uh as suppliers and it's like oh it's chicken cordon blue night and 
eventually I got sick of it because it's something you loved it at first and then after a while, oh no. And that's how I felt about fries too because we would go on like food convention, food shows and we'd be frying stuff for people and it's like, you know, I mean, I, I, I don't think, uh, you know, I can eat another french fry. Are you able to eat french fries today? Or? I, I can, I can. Okay. I, I, yeah, I've, I've mustered the courage, yes. Yeah. Were, were there any foods in particular that were like your absolute favorite? Um, again, he we sold a lot of orange juice, uh, concentrated orange juice, and mm. to me that was... Uh, not that I, I enjoyed the oranges, but I also enjoyed the fact that it was, he was since he was part of the Orange Growers, uh, uh, Orange Growers Association. Whenever we'd go to Disney World, which is a place that I know you and I are very fond of, yeah. uh, over at the Enchanted Tiki Bird, the, when the Enchanted, I don't tiki know what they room. called it, it was a Tiki Enchanted Tiki Room. Uh, they used to have a lounge, uh, like behind the scenes lounge, where you can go and uh, and it was Orange Bird. Obviously, the Orange Bird, the character is very popular now. Back yeah. then, he was just starting to blow up as a character. Yeah, and it's, I, a, it's a lot more popular now than it was before. It was. Character. It was back then. It was just a way to promote orange. You know, mm-hmm. it's an, it's a bird whose head is literally an orange, uh, which <laughs> yeah. is weird. Uh, but so they had like a lounge area. We'd go there, and every single time we were there, they'd always set us up courtside or I guess ringside for the Diamond Horseshoe Review, which is a place mm-hmm. where. You, now it's just sort of like a like a salon, a salon that salon like saloon, sorry, that you can eat at uh, and drink at. But back then there used to be a whole show, like it was like this right. old timey show. I remember that. Yeah, show. and they used to bring up a kid. They used to stand over above a trap door and all that. I was that kid like maybe eight nine times over the course of growing up, just because <laughs> we were always sitting at the best seats and we'd go there. And uh, yeah, so yeah. Well, this is where you and I are definitely kindred spirits because yes. we're both big uh, Disney World fans. Yes. And there was one trip where my wife and I met up with you and your wife yes and you actually got us into one of the secret lounges at epcot yes yes uh so um i can't talk too much about this <laughs> club 33 thing um just for obvious reasons but yeah uh, it, it is well, a, a lot of people it, know about it i think they know about it but again it's the kind of thing where they say well don't don't give all the details like how much it costs what the perks are and stuff like it we're sort right. of told hey you know it's 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 not an easy club to get into it's not mm. a cheap club to get into uh, but once you're there, uh, it's like a, it's, 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 yeah, you do have lounges and other things, uh, that, that make Disney World even more enjoyable. But again, I, I, it, to me, I, even before the club, obviously I was a big Disney fanatic. I would have been there for life. It was a pleasure to treat you and Erica out there and, you know, and hopefully I'll see you out there again and do it again. I remember when we were at that lounge at Epcot, I, I went to the bathroom and I remember just standing in there thinking to myself, this is the nicest bathroom I've ever been inside. Yes, yes. We stop, sometimes just stop in that bathroom, you know, like cloth napkins and everything, like stuff you don't see everywhere else in the Disney World Park. Right. So, yes. But there is one thing I do have over you, and it's yes. that Erica and I got to do the Star Wars Galactic Star Cruiser. Yes, I was jealous. Now, I'm not the <laughs> Star Wars fan that you are, so obviously I'm glad if one of us had to do it. I'm glad it was you and Erica. Uh, I wanted to go. I was meaning to go, and it got and it got discounted to the point that hey, you know what? Maybe it's worth it. Mm-hmm. Uh, but as we all know, uh, Disney it, wasn't turning a profit on it, and it will be closing at the end of September. It's so. flying away. Yes, it's flying, it's flying away. away. So, but an amazing experience. Yeah. Uh, I mean, it's it's one of those things that got a lot of mixed reviews, <laughs> as you would expect. I mean, every time Disney opens anything, people yeah. love it and people hate it. But Eric and I, we just adored that the heck out of it. Yeah, as uh, you should. Yeah. Um, how often are, are you at, at Disney World in Celebration? Yeah, so we have a place in Celebration, Florida. So Celebration, Florida is, 
if you saw the office, Andy uh, says, "I'm gonna, you know, I'm gonna move to a town. We're gonna move to Celebration, built by Disney World. <laughs> Disney World has nothing to do with Celebration anymore. They built it, then they unloaded it. Mm. Uh, but it's literally this town. It's almost like like Truman Show kind of town, at the end of World <laughs> Drive. So anyone that's ever gone to Disney World, any of the four parks, you've been on World Drive. It's that one street that connects all the Disney parks. If you mm. keep heading south." It literally ends on a sign that says celebration. And mm. you should stop because cars have kept going and fallen into a lake there, and it's not worked out well for them uh, in the past. But uh, <laughs> and celebration is this town. It's, it's a master planned community, but it's not gated. So it's not like you know anyone can come in, a uh, nice little downtown. But everything is throwback in the, in the sense that uh, there, are every, there are porches. Uh, in most houses, there's a front porch. They're, the garages are always in the back of the alley. So they don't want you like parking and hiding from it. You know, they want you, if you're going to be out leaving your house, they want you in front and visible to everyone and neighbors in, interact and engage with one another. A lot of trails there, which you normally don't, really don't see in like anywhere near Kissimmee. So you're literally right off 192 uh, and I, World Drive and I 4 are all right there. They all intersect right there. But it's a great place. If, you don't have to live there. Uh, you can go there and visit and still feel this kind of relaxing thing with really charming parks that are open to everyone uh, and amazing trails where you just, a, 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 such amazing wildlife. Uh, you know, we live right by a lake and sometimes uh, we call them chomps, like a little gators there. Uh, you'll sometimes see deer come by, rarely where we are. Uh, but, you know, there's all these animals, eagles, owls, uh, falcons. There's even bears now, which I know isn't a good thing to say. But yeah, it's, it's a very dynamic area. There are nicer neighborhoods in the area now, uh, outside of celebration. So well, I'm sure there's, now. Yeah, yeah, so there's a lot of fancier places and they're gated and stuff. I don't want a gate. And even though they say living in celebration is like living in a bubble, I don't mind being in that bubble. To me, it's something, you know, I don't mind the fact that I'm in a place and, and people are coming by. Halloween and celebration, it, it, people hate it because it's it's actually a budgetable item where you need to say, <laughs> I need to, I gotta, I, and where we live, it's not that heavily trafficked because we're like off a trail. We're like basically three, four minutes from downtown walk. But it's you got you don't know where we are unless you're, we're right across town hall necessarily so speak. But people don't necessarily know that there's homes there to go hit on Halloween. They all stick in the main village. But we've gone through 500, 600 pieces of candy. But I know in the heart of down in in, in the heart of celebration, uh, maybe four or five thousand pieces of candy people have handed out in the course of a night. So or they just shut off their lights and you know call it a day like most people do. But it's it to me it's 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 great. It's, it's celebrations at its best over the holidays. Yeah. Whenever you read any biography of Walt Disney, they always talk about Epcot and what his original vision of Epcot was. That it wasn't necessarily meant to be a theme park, but an actual, it was it was meant to be a prototype of what living in a, in a community could be like. And I feel like right. Celebration is not exactly that, but kind of the closest, next best thing to that. Yeah, I mean, if you look at the model of Epcot, the original, not not our Epcot Center, and, right. and, which is a theme park. It's a theme park, obviously. Right. Uh, yeah. it, it, it is sort of in the sense it'd be sort of everyone living together. Uh, there'd be a lot of, there was a lot of mass transit so that everyone would be able to live off the, you know, come work together and stuff like that. That doesn't necessarily exist in Celebration. Even though a lot of people have those NEVs, those short little golf cart kind of vehicles to drive around uh, if you live far from the center. But yeah, it, it, it's, it's like that in the fact that it is kind of the, Let's build a community. Let's have schools. Let's have shared experiences. Let's have work mm -hmm. so people can work and everything happen there. But that almost happens everywhere now. Um, even like, you know, in, in Doral, you know, you have residential and now downtown. So everywhere you go, it's happening where you sort of have that kind of feel. Uh, it's just, uh, yeah, Walt was uh, ahead of his time, obviously. Right. I mean, we could do a whole episode about you and I talking yes. about Disney stuff. <laughs> I would enjoy that, actually. From magic to it. the Magic Kingdom. So, exactly. Yeah. <laughs> um, was there any... Um, did you do any performing when you were growing up? So when I was a kid, um, I was uh, 
I had I was almost like a military brat growing up in as far as kindergarten, first grade, second grade and third grade. I went to four different schools. Really? Yeah. Uh, so in kindergarten, it was uh, not too far from here. So I, I my first house is basically like five blocks uh, north of where we are. North. Yes. North. Right. I'm trying to point in the right direction. Yes. North. Um, right by you the point in any direction. And I would believe you. Yeah. And I'm pointing as if like the podcast <laughs> is going to pick that up. But right by the, the boys club. The, so the Alex Rodriguez Miami Boys Club, which is oh, where okay, he started. So yeah. I basically lived like right across the street from there. And so there was a school, and it's right off 32nd. Um, now it's like an, the English Center. It's like an adult learning owned by the Miami-Dade Public School System, but it's like a charter, not charter, it's like a, it's an adult uh, English, like, a, you know, for you come into this country, as many people come in through here, uh, they teach you English, as I guess is what they right. do. It used to be a, like an elementary school. I was there in kindergarten. First grade, I was in Tucker Elementary in Coconut Grove. Uh, then second grade, I went to St. Hugh uh, Elementary, so it was like a Catholic high school, and I hated That's the only school mm. I hated out of everyone I went to. And then third grade through fifth uh, through sixth, I was at Coral Gables Elementary. Mm. Uh, and there I got into the gifted program, uh, which meant every Tuesday and Thursday, I would join kids that were far smarter than me. And we just would show up and it would be like, we'd give us like electives. Like as a, as a kid, you'd show up and they'd say, all right, you get to pick one of these three classes um, and you'd go to share different experiences. And there eventually, that's where I eventually started performing is I, I, there was a theater sort of track in there. And I went and I was part of a group that, you know, did performance and we did like shows at the end of every year and stuff like that. I know they do that at most schools, but uh, it felt a little different there because it was like people were seri really serious about it. And we had like some lady who was like off Broadway. And we did something called Frabious Friends, uh, which is like an Alice in Wonderland, uh, like a spinoff, like the characters like sort of spoofed off. And we performed it at the Fair Expo, the Miami-Dade County Youth Fair. And even though we were competing against high schools, we got second place, even oh, wow. though we, we were the only kids. And I got honorable mention. And to me, that, that, that when I got, when they, like, they said, hey, did you hear? No, it was, you know, you and this other person in our play got honorable mention. And I'm like, I didn't hear that. And so right away, my head started saying, I can perform, I can do this. But then a terrible thing happened, and it's called acne. So <laughs> sixth and seventh grade, I started breaking out. And yeah. and at the time, then just to shot all my confidence. And obviously, you can obviously be a great performer on stage with acne. But to me, I'm like, you know, I mean, I got more self conscious about that so I turned inwards towards music and I started playing guitar keyboards I had taken piano as a kid so I went down that track and as fate would have it started playing in bands and eventually right coming out of high school um, uh, was in a band that when I was in college uh, at the University of Miami we got signed to Columbia Records so uh, that's the whole Paris by Air thing which we are not even a one hit wonder we are one hit shy of a one hit wonder um, <laughs> but there are people that still know us we're very big in Brazil I'm told uh, really? so, yes yes I, I, on Spotify you look at the places where you, they hear you the most Brazil is like counts for like half our audience versus the rest of the world oh wow so yeah but so we we were lucked, we were very lucky at the time to uh, our band uh, to uh wind up with Louis Martinet, who's a producer who people may know, produced Exposé. And this was just before Exposé broke big. So they had the studio Pantera, and they were looking for artists. And we were sort of unique to them because we wrote our own material. We played our own instruments. And, uh, you know, Louis Martinet was always like, you know, sort of like the, you know, the Sengali of, of, of you know, of, of, you know, like, you know, girl groups, guy groups, uh, you know, just groups that he writes the songs, they do it. And ours, it was like a weird thing. He would collaborate with us, you know. So that became a thing where our sound sounded a lot different just about everything he did. But he 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 liked us, and we we became friends, and uh, were with them for several years, and released a couple records. Uh, one, uh, "Voices in Your Head," hit uh, singles, uh, hit 14 on the Billboard uh, Club Play uh, oh, dance wow. chart, and another one, "Come On and Dance Me," hit 35 in '89 and then '90. 
and then uh, then uh, we had uh, you know the Gulf War happened and Columbia uh, Records, Columbian Epic, uh, what we were signed to when they were CBS Records, they were at that point owned by Sony, had to cut half the roster, and unfortunately we were on that half day cut. So we had we had an advance for a whole album, and I you know we were really looking forward to what happens next, and just like that the rug got pulled under us, and that was it. That was the end of. We still kept recording because we still were musical, you know, nuts. But it took a while for me to accept that, you know, that dream, you know, that was fun. But, you know, I missed the acting thing I, I because, you know, I, I didn't have the confidence. I missed uh, the music thing because I was this close but didn't have the right timing uh, of when it happened. And then uh, then improv happened. Uh, not with the same kind of ambitions and goals that I had when I was young, but uh, another way to express myself artistically and creatively. So just so people can be able to Google you, let's repeat the name of the band again. Yes, Paris by Air. So Paris, B-Y-A-I-R. <laughs> and even though we're basically Latin freestyle, dance, synth, Miami pop, very Martinet produced in most of our tracks, you can hear it. Uh, the name Paris Bayer I got from it was a heavy metal band uh, called Tigers of Pantang and they had a song called Paris Bayer and at the time I was saying well like Berlin which was like a new wave band that was right around the time we they were emerging before we showed up uh, they, they're from California so they had nothing to do with Berlin they just wanted to distance themselves from Berlin and at the time I'm like you know, I mean, we're Miami, but we don't want to be like Miami Sound Machine. Obviously, right. Stefans can do that, or right. the, the more the, the, the hip-hop freestyle, Latin freestyle thing that was happening with so many other things. So we went with that name. We obviously then eventually wound up with Martinet, wound up doing the Latin freestyle music, but that was the, the origin of the name. I, I do have I do have a, an, an a Stefan story if you, if you and it, and it, it associates with the magic part that you and I are fond of too. Oh, so please, please do share. Yeah. So. Um, uh, for a while, in my 20s, uh, I belonged to the International Brotherhood of Magicians. I, I used to belong to that yes. when I was a teenager. Yeah. yeah. Well, I was older, so I was in my 20s, so I was already... And, and then my brother-in-law, uh, Louis Diaz, uh, you know his his son, right. my nephew, Louis, the other Louis Diaz, who's rising as a stand-up uh, everywhere he goes. Yep. Um, we would together, we had kids, so my oldest son and Louis Diaz is actually his second son, but we had kids sort of at the same age uh, and... and we started doing show magic at shows, like the two of us, at, at, when it was like family parties. And we said, hey, you know, um, why don't we join this International Brotherhood of Magicians? And we started getting these magazines and uh, access to these tricks. And they had meetings, uh, which I never bothered to be until I, with Louis, hey, I can go with someone. And uh, we met with our meetings, and I went to maybe three or four, and they were over here at Ponce de Leon Middle School, right in front of University of Miami. Mm. And my first time there, um, Gloria Stefan's son, Naiba Stefan, is there. And, oh, no way. Yeah, so he was part of the International Brotherhood of Magicians, too. And he was a lot younger than we were. I don't know if he was preteen or maybe teenager, but he was definitely young. And I remember being annoyed because he would, he's like, he would like, when they, they'd have a time, okay, let's time to present tricks. So people would be out there presenting their magic to magicians. So, and he'd be screaming, I know how it's done, and it's done this way. And it's oh, like, it was one he, of those. he was that person. And it's, and it's, again, there's code. And, we all get it, you know, we're not going to keep secrets from one another, but then no one complained because obviously it was, you know, Gloria Stefan and, and Emilio Stefan's exactly, son. Exactly, yeah. And again, I'm, he's grown up to be an amazing human, and back then, if I was that age and I had those means and that privilege, I would be doing it too. Right. But yeah, it was just a, um, a, a, just an interesting a magician among us, uh, you know, in, in famous uh, musical, uh, you know, legacy, royalty of Miami. About that. So when Paris by Air ended, yes. like you said, uh, the rug was pulled out from under you. Was it hard for you to kind of let that go and accept that that was gone? It wasn't at first, and I and I didn't let it go. So it's like it's it's Columbia let us go, 
And this was uh, 91. Um, I think it was 91. Yeah, 90, 1991. They, they said, hey, we're not going to release the album. Uh, you know, you're free to do, you know, we own all the material, but you're free to do whatever you want. And our singer, uh, Haiti, um, said, I'm moving to New York. And we're like, no, we need to regroup. This is this is our moment. There was three of us. And we said, we need to stay here, get this sentence. No, I want to go, uh, you know, New York. I've always wanted to live in New York. I'm going to do it now. And that's where I'm going to, you know, follow me if you want. But if not, I'm going there. So we had to find a new singer. And uh, then Hurricane Andrew hit in 92. And that destroyed our theater. Uh, sorry, theater, our, our recording studio, which is right in front of Tamiami Airport. So all the mm, way out in West yeah, West Kendall. Yeah. And at that point, we're like, what do we do? And so we had a, a song that someone submitted. We wrote all our songs. So we had a song called I'm Serious. We put it out. And that was our third song that got some airplay, like on Power 96 played it. We played at the MTV Festival uh, at CB Smith Park. Uh, so uh, oh, we had a nice little show there and, and stuff. But then that was pretty much it. Uh, after that, there was nothing happening. But for years, for like maybe three or four or five more years, we did continue to get together, record and write, thinking, hey, you know, it, maybe it could happen. You know, we don't know, you know, what's going to happen. Eventually, uh, Will became a firefighter. Uh, um, Terry, our second singer, became a pharmacist. Um, I just, uh, you know, became who I was. So, yeah, it, it's, it's the kind of thing where the band is not even technically broken up, you know, so it's, mm -hmm. but uh, we haven't done anything like maybe 14, 15 years. We got together, uh, Sanday, who was one of the original expose singers, uh, passed away about 15 years ago, 12, 15 years ago, and we had a benefit concert at at, uh, at Hot Wheels. Uh, so we, uh, so it was Australia, <laughs> Bruno was there from Expose, and a lot right. of the other uh, people that, you know, a lot of the artists that were in, uh, from Miami at that time, Friends of Sanday came in uh, for the charity concert, but that was it, that was our last official show. So, so but at any yeah. time, Paris by Air could regroup and come back with another song you know you never know the thing is i've never had time and i and i don't have again it's i have my, my keyboards and again i mean here just the funny we have keyboards and i have a thing called rick hop where i'm on the keyboards playing right. stuff it's not the real music that we made back then obviously mm -hmm. so I, I can do it that way but I, I was never much of a keyboardist i was more of a songwriter than a mm -hmm. keyboardist the beauty of being a, a miami with working with martinez everything we could sequence everything and produce everything and just code it so it would work well uh but yeah it, it it's it's I, I could never really play really well to begin with, and uh, you know I, I was able to let it go that way. But again, it was sort of hard. the realization I wouldn't buy a single record from Columbia Records uh, for like the longest time because I felt like they did this to us. It was right. it wasn't a while until yeah. I came to terms that you know it's it's not it's not Sony, it's not Columbia Records. It's mm -hmm. it's, it's just it's, we just happened to be on the wrong side of it, and uh, we weren't commercially as as accessible as we could have been. Uh, you know I wish we would have had the album out because we had some songs there that I think may have done it, mm -hmm. but. Rather than live in revisionist history, I didn't. And then um, I think, like, I forget what the year was, but Toad the Wet Sprocket, uh, this kind of band, they came out with um, with, with this one song. I'm like, no, I, ha I just have to I have to buy it. So I went and bought my first Columbia record. And I'm like, <laughs> uh, you know what? It doesn't hurt so bad. And, right, and, yeah. yeah. But, but it's great that you have the mentality because, I mean, there are a lot of people who would have been in your position who would just completely crumble yes. without that mindset. They would have felt like, you know, oh, how dare Columbia Records do that? And then, of course, they feel like, oh, my entire life is over so it's great that you had that maturity i guess to be able to say that happened and it didn't go the way it planned and that's okay yeah yeah again it, it's not easy it's not easy because it's just like if, if you ever know someone like it's everyone has a friend who oh the, the, they, they got this big part or they got this big job and then once it doesn't go their way it's always kind of like this the next time you see that person they have to tell you you know i didn't it's not it's not happening for me. So it's kind of like a thing where I had to sort of go on like a, you know, a, the, the, the I'm sorry tour. Every time I saw someone, right. wait, you haven't, yeah, it, it, don't ask me about the band. It didn't happen. And, right. and so, but yeah. But, but there's a difference between saying, oh, that didn't happen. 
and well, that didn't happen. You know, it's it's yeah. it's a whole mindset. Yeah. So you had mentioned uh, briefly that you still kind of missed being an actor. So at what point did you decide you wanted to explore that again? Yeah. So again, I didn't come in. I was never a theater kid as far as like beyond my elementary school days and my honorable mention. Once the acne came, I never really got into that. But I was always intrigued by improv. And it, it my love for improv didn't happen here in Miami. It actually happened in Orlando. And oh, did it really? Yes. Uh, so And I know Orlando has SAC Comedy Lab and many other things, but I've never been to SAC Orlando. I, I have a place basically 20 minutes away from there. I have never been to SAC. I, maybe I'll try to go this summer now that I've said this. Because I've, a, I've actually never gone to their show either. I mean, I've heard mm-hmm. nothing but wonderful things, yes. but I just haven't had a chance to, to go there. Yeah, I've met many people who are, and I don't mean Wayne Brady. I've met many other people that are local and still part of that scene. Uh, so I definitely want to check it out. But it, Disney World, of all places, had a place called Comedy Warehouse. At I remember. What is yeah. now Disney Springs, back when it was uh, The Village, and then The Village Marketplace. Uh, no, but before that, yeah, it was uh, Downtown Disney. Yeah, Downtown Disney, right. It was Downtown Disney. And they had a place, it was just like, it was just like several clubs. So there was like mm-hmm. Mannequins, which was like a club, like the dance club with the rotating dance floor. I remember that. Uh, which Paris Fire did play a show there. So I have this, <laughs> I have fond memories of playing at Disney. Yeah. Uh, but uh, the place that attracted me was this place called Comedy Warehouse. And we were there right when it opened, me, uh, my wife, and uh, my older sister and her husband. Uh, we showed up there and it wasn't improv at that time the way it was. It was sort of like a weird show that was and it was basically called Wallet Disney World and they were basically <laughs> skewering Disney and to me it was like you can do this you can be in Disney paid by Disney and actually just make a whole thing on how this thing's just a money pit and it's just a tourist trap and they did a whole show there was some maybe some improvised numbers when I came back the next time I guess Disney said hey you know what cool it and they had more of a traditional <laughs> show but they would do it was, it was a very like a lot of stuff that we tried to do here, which is like part musical, part uh, improv. Uh, there were phones and some of the tables that would ring. And when they, that's how they would get, they didn't ask for suggestions. Like a phone would ring and that mm. person would be interviewed for their uh, musical hoedown or anything like that. So, oh, wow. uh, so, and it, it, we, I'd go and it, it was a show like every, it was like a 45 minute show. You get out and you go line up again and you come into the next show. Like that's the kind of thing. Like it's, it's, that was my process. I'd catch two or three shows. I had that bug. So I come down to Miami. Well, I, I'm in Miami, but I, I'm in Miami, and this whole thing happens where, um, what I told you in 2012, before that I had two near misses, which is so funny. So, near misses? Near misses, yeah. Near misses in that uh, I knew that they were playing, uh, we were, I can say we now, even though it wasn't we back then, right. that we were playing at uh, what is now, well, used to be the, the Miami Planetarium, which is now yeah. level land right now, right across the um, the, the Metrorail station, um, not Brickle, the one before Brickle, I forget what it is. Vizcaya, it's a Vizcaya, Vizcaya, Vizcaya yeah. Metrorail station, right across there. Uh, but then they moved over to, uh, well, they, we were all over the place, as you know. You may, you may have even played in some of these shows. There was a show at the Holiday Inn, right across from UM, a couple years later, several years later. Uh, and I was going to go, my wife and I, and I don't know if we bought tickets or we were going to buy tickets, but we show up there, and also when we're there, it's like, where it's like a conference room. It's it's like it's one of these like meeting conference rooms where right. these things shows took place, and it's like hospital lit. It's like very bright lights and everything. I'm like, I don't. This is weird. Yeah, that's where I first auditioned. Yeah. actually. Yeah. Okay. Well, again, I'm yeah. sorry. Actually, I'm sorry if I didn't Holiday see your Inn show. Actually, was first, and then uh, the the Museum of Science. The Museum of Science. Okay. Yeah. All right. Yes. All right. So and, and it was at the Museum of Science. Uh, that's the time that that I arrived. Okay. So at at the at the Hollywood at the at the Hollywood, we were literally we parked, walked inside, and looked around and go. Let's go to Denny's or whatever was next. Whatever was, was just, just go eat somewhere else, kind of thing. Uh, but then uh, we were fans of Lost, the show Lost, mm. and I don't know if it was 2010, 2011. I don't know the year, but here at Just the Funny, they did like a Lost uh, improv show, Lost improv theme show, 
And right away, my wife said, hey, did you see this? And we had other friends that were Lost fans. So we came in and we saw the show. And it was, um, I can't remember who was in the show right now. Um, I, I checked with David. And he said, no, I was not here for that show. But uh, the show, and everyone got tickets from like Oceanic uh, Flight. Like it's all themed to the actual Lost show. <laughs> and it's sort of like a trap because you came in and you're thinking, all right, this is going to be all Lost. And it's like maybe one thing about Lost. And then it's like a bunch of other improv games. <laughs> but to me, I was like, this is good, you know, and, and so, and I kept that in the back of mind, and then when, when it happened, when I needed a place to go, I, that's when I finally said, all right, now I'm going to come as a student uh, and, and give it a go, and mm-hmm. uh, yeah, that's what What were some of the things that you learned from your time as a, as a student that yeah. were things you didn't expect to learn? Yeah, again, I thought that it, it's, when you, when everyone start improv, it's like, all right, the goal is to make someone laugh. Right. And right away, you know, from our improv one, and I think most improv ones, you're not making people laugh. You're like getting in uncomfortable positions. You're learning about relationships. You're doing characters. You're doing scenes. Back, I didn't come in even know. I didn't know what the yes and tenant was until I was taking classes. Uh, now I think everybody, even non-improv, knows it because it's said so often. But I, I came in thinking, all right, let's 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 you know. I, I think I can be funny, uh, you know. And it wasn't. Uh, it was you're doing hard stuff. It wasn't until we got to improv two that we're doing short form that you start doing stuff. But yeah, to me that's the thing that. I was coming in thinking the goal is to make someone laugh. And I think maybe initially, like that, maybe that improv one student show, you had family and friends in the audience, you want to make mm-hmm. them laugh. But over time, you realize that making the audience laugh isn't the goal. Right. It's, it's, it's to mystify them. It's, it's, to, it's, it's, to, it's, to, it's to literally do magic on stage. Mm-hmm. Because that moment, you can get a heartiest laugh from a single joke, a well-placed pun. But if you actually manage to connect with your scene partner and anyone else in the scene with you in a way that the audience thinks that must have been written, that's magic. And that's, that's, it's those moments that I live for when I'm here on weekends and when I'm lucky to be enough in one of the shows. It's, it's, I don't want to make the audience want to laugh. I want to make the audience scratch their heads and go, how'd they do that? To me, that's more impressive than a laugh, which you can get, you know, you can, good jokes are anywhere. You can pick one up and say it and get a laugh. You, yeah. It takes work and effort to make the connections that are, are going to resonate with an audience. Were you disappointed uh, in, in any way, the fact that the goal wasn't to make people laugh or to be a, a funny person? Uh, again, I don't. I wasn't disappointed to me because I, 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 that's what I thought was going to happen. But again, I didn't come in there into class to make people laugh. I didn't come in expecting to punch my ticket into mm-hmm. some sketch troupe you know, in New York City or anything like that. I came in with the, with the goal to say, I wanted to become a better speaker. I wanted to get out of my comfort zone, mm-hmm. and I succeeded in all fronts. And I wound up with friends. You know, uh, I was in my 40s at the time, but I wound up carpooling with a guy in his 30s who lived a couple blocks away from me, and we became really good friends. Uh, and everyone in that, everyone in my class, even though no one from my class is in the cast right now, about maybe three or four wound up being in the cast. I still follow most of them and what they're doing. Uh, I know one of them, uh, Megan Rico, became a producer for Impractical Jokers. Um, and and, and the, it's, everyone just sort of had, you know, we, we still connect. Um, uh, Manny, uh, Manny, who was part of our cast, uh, Manny Fernandez, um, uh, he's in Georgia now. But, I mean, I, I'm still following and see what they're doing and stuff. So we still sometimes remember things that happened back in 2012 during the class. And, uh, yeah, it's just... Uh, it's, to me, I'm, it didn't disappoint me that it wasn't all making people laugh. I was confused at first. I was like, wait a minute. Then I think, I was like, wait, I think I just accidentally walked into Toastmasters when I thought it'd be serious. <laughs> um, and I'm not going to give away stuff that we do in our improv one class. I think this is like secret handshake stuff, like all places have their stuff. But uh, there's a lot of stuff that we do, especially even from that first day of class where you're like, I wasn't expecting this. Yeah. But it's an experience that later on you go, it's almost like a fraternity when you go through the, the ritual of, of being, you know, you, you become a brother or a sister or a sorority, um, and you're there for the next group coming in, the next uh, initiation. You're like, they're going to love what's going to happen next kind of thing. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. yeah. I think everyone who comes in as a, as a student 
uh, comes in thinking pretty much along the same lines of, of what of what you're thinking, and it's it's always wonderful as an instructor to see the revelation that they get. Like, oh, I don't have to try to be funny. Oh, I don't have to be the funniest person in the room because I think we get a lot of students who are worried that they're not going to be funny, and then they're surprised to learn that it's not about that necessarily. Yeah, yeah, I think it's it, and it's. I think, I mean, again, I, I don't know if anyone ever just says, you know, this is this is not what I thought. I'm never coming back. I mean, obviously, I think improv can make people uncomfortable, mm-hmm. but it's the kind of thing that I think someone who wasn't expecting to come to an improv class would probably get more out of it than someone right. that sometimes does. And so it's kind of like the weird kind of, uh, hey, I know it didn't work for you, but I think your friend would have probably, you know, worked better with this kind of yeah. thing. So, Yeah. Um, when did you decide you wanted to start teaching improv? So, again, it's I was not teaching. So we were 2012 here. We are a very small cast. Uh, I, when before I was at even the, the time cast, we were right, a small yeah, cast. Yes, yes. Now we're now, now we're like what, like fifty people? Yeah, correctly? like fifty active and another twenty, thirty alums that you know when they come to town we get them into shows and stuff. Yeah. So it's it's very uh, more than that alums, but I mean alums that have you know come in and hey I'm in town uh, yeah. can can you help me out? Uh, I I when I started teaching it so I made the cast uh, after my, my improv three class so we don't imp- we don't audition anyone until they're done with the full course of classes here but back then. Uh, when we started improv three, that was a pretty much hey, it, we were we were the lot we were twelve people in that improv one class, mm-hmm. and they said hey, I think we can actually you know let's bring these people in because the cat the cast was actually thinning out. Yeah. When I was here, there were there was what they called the main stage cast, which had a good eight nine people, and then everyone else was was called the mix, and yeah. that group I think had just two active people at that point, so they wanted more people there to be able to, to you know help with that and help with crew and everything else. So we auditioned. Uh, five of us made it. Um, four of us stuck around. And uh, and eventually, then I, I didn't teach then, so I wasn't teaching at that moment. But then after 2012, when I became part of the ownership group, mm-hmm. it became a thing. Hey, Rick, would you like to teach? And uh, my wife is a teacher. My wife is a great teacher. Uh, she retires this month uh, um, as the English department chair at her alma mater high school. Oh, wow. So um, she teaches. I don't teach. To me, I, I was just you know teach me. I'm I'm here to absorb it. <laughs> right, I right. work with numbers for a living, and this is my escape. I I, I never <laughs> approached myself as an yeah. instructor. Uh, but sure enough, they said, hey, we need instructors. And I said, sure, I'll do it. So I've taught the sketch class. I've taught uh, the improv uh, pretty much, except for improv five, uh, I think I've taught all our levels. Haven't been teaching so much lately because I'm doing a lot more stuff behind the scenes now. Mm-hmm. Um, the VP of finance, I'm the VP of education on the student side. So I'm the one that annoys the, the you know, the, the people, about, hey, uh, you know, you seem to skip, the, you know, skip the semester. Don't you want to hop back in kind of thing? So I'm doing the, <laughs> that table touching what they call in restaurants when you're like, hey, yeah, do you need yeah. anything else? Yeah. I'm that person. And I like being that person. Not that I like it. it. It takes a lot of time. But to me, it's the kind of thing that it's like, if we don't do that, uh, then we have empty classrooms. And, uh, you know, you're going to get churned anyway. So I think uh, I, I'm focusing more on that. I haven't mm-hmm. I've come in and sub. So LD, I think I maybe I subbed for you once. This, oh, I don't think I did. I think, uh, I think I think you may have subbed for me yeah. at one point. Yeah. yeah so I'll, I'll come in if, 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 if they need a sub. But most part, you know, uh, my, my two other fellow owners, uh, Marlene and David, uh, they are far more uh, from the educational world uh, as far as improv goes. And they are teaching a lot more than I am. But yeah. But were you surprised uh, by how much you actually enjoyed teaching the classes? I, I was because it's it's the kind of thing where even when I took the classes, there were classes levels that I loved and levels that I wasn't so fond of. But I, I'm like, well, I'll teach it if someone needs to do it. It's to me it was always surprising when I had the the improv twos, which is our short form class. Which mm-hmm. to me, I, I love short form. I love long form too, but I, I prefer that over kind of like the scene work that we do, like an improv three kind of thing. Um, when I taught an improv three, I'm like. 
this I when I was a student, it didn't occur to me. You see it through a different POV when you're actually the instructor instead of the right. student. And not only that, especially with improv, just like the whole thing about haha, improv two in our case, the short form class, very haha. Uh, but when you get to three, you see the transformation. You you see that you're making, you're connecting changes. Improv two, you're more like you, you you know you have a party going on and everyone's having a great time. The audience and right. and the improvisers. Three, you're making that the clicks. You know, and I mean clicks like C L I C K. Like things are clicking with people. And I think that that's always a, you know just like it, it's amazing to do it when you're doing it on stage in front of an audience. When you make that connection within your actual students, it's it's a gift that you know you'll always remember. Yeah, I mean, I was just talking to Anthony Francis about this about how. You know, our students learn from us, but at the same time, we also learn a lot from them. Yeah. And I feel like every time I teach, and, you know, I've taught all six of our classes and our specialty classes, but every time I teach, I always get something new out of it, which is a which is an incredible experience. And I have to imagine it's probably the same with you. Yeah, yeah, it is. And, yeah, because it's, we know, we know the curriculum, mm-hmm. but, like, improv... Improv is all made up as you go along. So are right. these classes. You don't know the melting pot that is every single class of different people uh, all interacting together. And even though you think, well, they know each other, I don't know them. It, like if it's a group that's been together, it's never that way anyway. Because there's always, you know, the, the, when I'm doing that table touching, hey, don't you want to hop back into improv? People jump in and they get thrown into a new class, not the people they were with before because they missed a couple of cycles. So everything, all, the mix is always different and you're going to get different experiences and you're going to get different challenges too. So it, it's, you get, you get a little bit of everything. How do you, when you're in a show, how do you typically approach a scene? Let's say we're doing a, a short form piece, for example, yeah. since you love short form. How do you normally approach a particular game that you're playing? I, I think with all games, so obviously when you get to this point where you've been, impro- I know all the rules to the game, so I'm not, I don't get stage jitters or anything. I do that when I'm doing maybe like if I'm doing a hip hop improv show or musical improv where I feel like I'm going to have to work hard to keep up with the rest of my castmates. Regular improv, I feel like I'm not worried about that. Uh, I, I go in um, and prepared wise, I'm more like my style is more almost, um, I'm going to say ninja, you know, like just, like different styles of ninja. I'm not the one, I may not initiate uh, a scene. Um, I may not even be the first one to jump in, but I'm always trying to make the connections. So I'm always trying to play, you know, trying to, trying to connect the dots. Uh, you know, I'm like the, the, the Charlie Day in, in that, in that uh, where he's looking at all the maps and all, trying to figure everything out uh, meme. And I, that, that to me is me, that I'm trying to see what does this scene need? Uh, to me, I'd rather figure that out than be in a scene and wonder how come someone else isn't figuring it out, uh, you know, that's waiting on the wings to help me. So that tends to be, I think, uh, how I approach things in, in a way that I'll try to do anything I can to make that scene better. I'll try anything I can to make my scene partner look better uh, than both uh, what they would have done without me and better than with than me. So if they remember someone from the scene, it's not me. I'm the one that served up the softball uh, for them to hit out of the park. Yeah, I definitely agree that that's definitely one of your strengths from what I have observed. I mean, you do a good job of coming into a scene and seeing, you know, what shape Peg needs to go into that yeah. hole. Um, and I've even seen you save some scenes sometimes. <laughs> sometimes you have to, you know, put on the preserver and be the lifeguard, jump out there and, and you know, Baywatch whistle and all. But I, I think uh, with that, that part is, again, so as a writer, so even though it's, it's I'm a financial analyst, which is boring, it's really writing. We're writing about the stock market, mm-hmm. writing about things. Right. And so as a writer... Um, I try to make the connections, and just as I look, I can look at a script, and I could say I, 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 I'm one of the leaders, one of the directors of our sketch team. So uh, that's something that I take pride in, on the written side. But I prefer the improv when the improv is better than the sketch because it's unexpected and it happens. But the same principle happens where uh, you are approaching something from, all right, this is how it starts, 
it should end. There should be a connection. There should be a reason why we took the audience on this journey. Rather, the evolution of someone is great, but if you can make connections with something that happened before and not in a gimmicky way, not, not like in a ha-ha, look, you know, we said the pun again, we said that catchphrase again, but truly make it connect. To me, that's when uh, I feel I succeeded in tying a piece together mm-hmm. and giving who's ever editing the piece that button to end the scene right there because it's the one line that people will think and say, okay, that tied everything together. It was nice, big, uh, you know, little bubble of fun, uh, and it was all contained, and there was a beginning and an end and definitely a heart in the middle. There's a particular show that we do here at JTF, and I know you're very much involved with it. It's a show that we call Kipasa Improv. Yes. And it's our Spanglish show where we do improv in English and in Spanish, and you've been involved in that show for a number of years. Um, do you notice any differences between doing improv in English and in Spanish? Um, to me, Spanish is... So, um, I, I mean, I heard that, David, when you're saying your Spanish is your weak suit, you just didn't grow up speaking Spanish, David, too. Um, I grew up speaking Spanish. So, right. I mean, I grew up in Puerto Rico, too, for, for my formative years, well, my, my first five years, four years. So, it, to me, I can speak the Spanish, not as fluent. And the thing is, in Miami, it's you're in a melting pot right now. And yeah. as a Cuban, I speak one way. Uh, someone, uh, Argentina will speak in a different way. Uh, Chileno will speak in a different way. Peruano, every, obviously uh, Puerto Rican, Boricuas, and I'm part Boricua too, so I, I can speak Boricua and Cuban. And I don't mean speak as in the accent. I mean that I know all the lingo. Yeah. But um, you throw me uh, Mexican terms or something, I may not know it. So it's not just a matter of doing improv in Spanish. But it, it, it's difficult in that sense. Uh, but it's also, I was part of the original Que Pasa Improv team, and uh, and we, we started up, and we, our initial thing was, just like Que Pasa USA, the TV show, which is based here in Miami, put by PBS, it was put nationally, but most people outside of Spanish-speaking cultures aren't going to know it, but it was a bilingual right. comedy show that you could watch, and it didn't matter whether you knew English or Spanish, you would be able to enjoy it, because everything was sort of said and then sort of repeated, not in an, not in like a, like a patronizing way, like, I'm going to repeat it verbatim, but the response would be in English to something that was said in Spanish in a way where I know what they're responding to without knowing exactly yeah. what was asked. And so, vice versa. Right. So it was written very cleverly, and we initially tried to do it that way. The show tried to be like the Kibasa, except in improv form, and it was difficult, because mm-hmm. if it's written for you, you can map out everything. This is how I get it so that both audiences do it. In, in reality, it was very difficult to pull off. So we struggled a little bit until we said, you know what, let's just do it all in Spanish or all in, in Spanglish or all in English and then with the Spanish overtones. So we've taken our, the, the Que Pasa Improv Show, uh, we've taken it to Orlando uh, for festivals. Uh, we played in Atlanta at Dad's Garage. We got brought in and, and took over there uh, for, for a weekend of shows there, uh, doing shows. And even Atlanta had a very big, large, we thought, all right, this is just going to be Atlanta. So we're gonna, it's going to be like a Southern crowd. Uh, no, it was a lot of Hispanics just were there at the show. So we're like, oh, wait, so we should do this in Spanish. So we're a lot more Spanish <laughs> than we were going to plan on using for the show. Uh, whereas in Orlando, we knew that we were at, a, at, at like an English-speaking festival. So we basically did, you know, we're doing a telenovela in English, but with all, all the over-the-tropes, you know, all, over-the-top tropes that people associate with the telenovela theme. And that was, to me, one of my favorite shows, the one we did in Orlando uh, for the Orlando Comedy Festival. Um, I forget what year it was, maybe 2018, 2019, something uh, like that. Fairly recently, I think, yeah. 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 Um, so what made you decide to join the management team of JTF? So it was 2012, and things, I, I think it's fair to say, uh, you know, David and Marlene would say I overshare too much, but when when I when that, when I was brought into hey if I wanted to be part of the management team it wasn't hey this Rick guy looks like he's like a sharp you know whip you know he's he has an MBA uh, he can he can save us because David has an MBA uh, you know that it's that's it's it's not that um, the company was literally at the point where 
um, the cast was thin. The cast was thinning out, and and it was kind of like it, you know it was either we're gonna close down or we're gonna have to go for it. And at the time, I said, I just you know paid for this education. I just paid. I just made this cast, and if I can put in my effort and my time and a little bit of money, not too much, but a little bit of money, um, to keep this place alive and try to steer it so that it survives. Um, it'll be worth it for me and it'll be worth it for everyone else that follows me. And thankfully, um, here we are 11 and a half years later. And instead of closing down in 2012, which is very possible, um, we have lifted everything up, uh, got an amazing team, an amazing cast. I mean, we, we travel a lot more. We, we're, our brand is known far in far wider places uh, than before. Uh, the Miami Improv Festival that I help with, but David runs the festival. I'm, I'm, Marlene and I help it uh, with, with it, uh, has achieved, you know, it, it's, we get people from all over the world literally right now. So, yeah. so it is the kind of thing where I, I came in because I wanted, I came in for selfish reasons. I came in because I wanted to protect uh, my, the theater I just joined and protect my, the education I just earned. I, I didn't want to have like a, a, basically a phantom degree to a phantom place. Uh, you know, I wanted to, 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 you know, to exist and coexist and grow. And uh, so, yeah, I didn't hesitate to do it. And, uh, and I wouldn't have hesitated to do it again. So I've I'm, I'm been very happy with the last few years turned out. So being a part of management, what would you say your vision, and I'm, it's obviously, I'm assuming, a shared vision with yeah. David and Marlene, mm -hmm. but what would you say your vision is for the future of, of this company? I, I, think, I think improv has become... Uh, it, it, it's not, it, we know this as, as improvisers, that improv isn't just a skill, isn't just a way to make entertain people. It's a, it's, it's a manageable skill. Um, my wife will tell you that I have far more, you know, I'm far more punnier than before. I'm always looking for jokes and angles, and I set up things in a way like as an improviser does. I, I don't need your wife to tell me yeah, that. I'm yeah. well aware of that. Which annoys her to no end, but if you ask her, is Rick a better listener now than he was 11 years ago? She's going to say, oh yeah. So um, there's skills there that just in, in everything from job negotiations, everything that, that it does work out. So um, I, I believe that improv itself will continue to expand. And I think just the funny as, 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 a, as, a, as a theater, I mean, when, when, it, when David started this uh, um, uh, with a couple people, it was, uh, it was just a small thing. We're going to just get, we're going to do shows. When, even when I came in here, we were doing shows one night a week. Uh, one night, one show. Uh, I believe it was Saturday nights, and sometimes they had like other teams, like Special and a Bad, with like a special, like a house team from mm -hmm. who came in do right. Friday. We did jams on Friday, so it was just yeah. like we don't have enough people to put on two nights of shows. So it's evolved to the point where we have a full gamut of specialty shows and everything else. Mm -hmm. And I think the vision I always had when I came in, my, Rick uh, in 2012 was different than Rick in 2023. It's back then I was like. All right, you know, um, I was like, hey, I have a YouTube channel. Let's, let's get some, start making videos. Let's start making funny videos. Let's start doing all these things that, that seem like, let, let's make us influencers and do all these things. Let's make funny t-shirts and all these things. Now it's more of a place, all right, um, maybe we'll find the next younger wave of improvisers that come up and be part of this company and do have that kind of metal to, to get edgy and stuff like that. Um, now it's just a matter of how can we take our program and keep expanding it? Where else can we teach uh, our classes. We're, we're again. We are we are teaching um, six levels of improv. Uh, when I was here, it was four, and then the fifth one was just sort of it became a herald. At was the fifth one when I took it. Um, so I only took four actual improv levels. Now it's six. We have specialty classes that didn't exist. So um, as David, Marlene, and I expand the courses we offer, we're seeing we're getting a lot more people. We used to have one sketch class. Now there's two levels to the sketch class. We weren't teaching stand-up uh, comedy until about four or five years ago, until right. Joe Ney uh, uh, helped us develop that program. So I think we will continue to evolve. I think our cast will continue to get larger. I think we'll get more stage opportunities. So even though it's larger, it's not that 
you're going to be on the fringes. Uh, but yeah, I, I definitely see us growing. Um, and it's not that I'm saying that, you know, there's not that there's going to be a just a funny celebration, which would be very nice <laughs> and convenient to have in both my homes. But I, I do think it's, 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 uh, I, I'm very positive about the future of just the funny, even though now I at 55, I, I know that I won't be part of the future as far as like 10, 20, 30 years from now. Um, I'll hopefully be a fan in many ways, but I do think that, um, that the future is very bright. You know, next year, this company celebrates 25 years. Yes. And you have now become very much a big part of JTF's legacy. Um, For better or worse, yes. <laughs> how do you feel about being a part of the legacy of this place that has grown and has gone through many twists and turns and has become such a great, great house of improv? I'm honored to be part of that. And I'm also honored if if, if I'm not remembered. Uh, and I mean this in, in, the, in the most honest ways because when I got here... Um, there were nine photos on the wall. It was everyone on the main stage. I, I believe, I believe that, your photo yeah. was one of them. So uh, my, my photo got added much later. Okay, yes. yeah. So w when I got here, it was just so you'd walk in and it's like, oh, this is like the house that these nine people built. Um, and it was so there was always this kind of thing that it was them versus us. Uh, and it was like, how do I get on that wall? And to me, it was always the wrong thing. It was like the status that I don't think we wanted. I think the fact that we have so many, uh, so obviously a cast that's four or five times larger than it was when I joined. And no one feels like, uh, you know, a second class citizen or like, oh, these are these are the ones we hold up. Um, clearly, we have improvisers. Some improvisers are better than others in certain scenes and certain scenarios. But I, I think it's, it's if, if, if my legacy is that I was sort of like an invisible hand uh, that anonymously uh, nudged the company in right directions uh, when it had to so that we wouldn't let our ego swallow us whole. Um, I feel like I succeeded. So I, I don't really necessarily want people to remember me as the legacy. To me, this is the company that David uh, started. And hopefully, uh, you know, uh, the future belongs to other people that can take, you know, hopefully we're around 50, 60 years from now. And the three of us are, that are the owners now um, may not even be, you know, maybe not even part of this world at that point. Um, so I, I hope it continues in that way. And I hope that there's very important people that do it. But my, if, if I could be remembered as just someone that, uh, Rick, Rick, what, wasn't he here for like, you know, and didn't he do, uh, I don't remember, what did he do exactly? No, I, I, I know what I did. And that is that the company grew and that we were able to succeed and spread improv, the love of improv, the joy of improv uh, to so many other places. So to me, that's, that's the ultimate legacy. Well, that's very honorable, but I think it's safe to say that you definitely will be remembered because you definitely had a hand in JTF's growth within the last couple of years. And, you know, me being a part of this theater for so long, I've Personally, I, I thank you for that. I thank you for being a part of that legacy. Thank you, Andy. And we're going to end on one final question, and this is okay. the last question I always ask. All right. What's the one piece of advice that has served you well that you want everyone else to hear? Wow. Okay. I didn't hear David's to the end, so I didn't see this coming. But, um, um, man, it has to be an original thought. You want an original thought, don't you? It can be whatever yeah. you want. It could come from you. It could come from someone else. Um, I don't want to say like what doesn't kill you make you stronger. That's that's not quotable. That's 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 too too cliche. But um, well, why not? If it served yeah. you well, then um, let's just say um, he who laughs last forgot to laugh. Um, I just think that it, it's it's I don't even know what that means. I just said it right now. But to me, I'm gonna try to break it down now, like I do an improv, trying to connect the dots of what I just said. But I think if you wait to laugh to the at the end, as if it's some kind of game, who laughs last, last win, wins that way, mm. it's not a victory. Uh, if you laughed along the way, it's far better than just laughing one time at the end. It's not a matter of who, it's not a matter of who has the final word. It's a matter of you know who put in the commas and the periods and the question marks along the way before you get to that final word. So um, I think that that's 
approaching life that way to be the little ninja be the one that connects the dots uh be the one you know you don't have to be the star uh, to shine bright i love that that's great thank you so much rick thank really you. appreciate your time thanks thanks so much rick and remember to laugh everybody i think that's such an easy thing for us to forget sometimes laugh enjoy what you do enjoy the life you have be sure to support my friend rick by visiting his youtube channel called moon pies and follow him on twitter at marketing yes that's his real handle at marketing to learn more about the motley fool visit fool.com to learn about investing and stock market research and don't forget about my website togetherbymyself.com where you can learn more about my solo improv show and my improv workshops. Thanks, everybody. Have a wonderful day. Don't forget to laugh. And I'll see you next time on Improv and Magic. Music.